If you would take your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to John chapter 12. This morning we'll be in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. We'll be uh, breaking up the reading, first considering the, uh, the first 11 verses, and then looking ahead to, uh, to verses 12 through 19. And as we consider the first 11 verses, the point there will be love Jesus. As we uh, look at verses 12 through 19, the second point will be serve the king. So text divided into two, two points, love Jesus, serve the king. Let's look at the first 11 verses. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Now, in these first 11 verses of John 12, we see love for Jesus and hatred toward Jesus on clear display before us. After raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus had, as we saw last week, gone away from Jerusalem to a place called Ephraim, and then as the Passover drew near, the crowds uh, began coming to Jerusalem, and as they heard the orders that were given by the Pharisees and chief priests that they were supposed to report the whereabouts of Jesus if they knew where he was, the crowds were, were wondering if Jesus would indeed be coming up for the Passover or perhaps not. And sure enough, he did. We are told here that six days before the Passover, he came to Bethany, to the village of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And so to put this in our terms, this would probably be the Friday before Good Friday. Good Friday, the day, being Jesus, the, the day when Jesus was crucified, this would be the week prior to that. The Passover lamb was to be killed on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which happened on Thursday. And if you count back six days from that Thursday, that would land you on Friday. The Jewish Sabbath would have begun at sundown on Friday evening. And so this means that Jesus likely spent his last Sabbath before the crucifixion there at Bethany. And while he was there, they made a supper for him. Presumably this would have been the supper uh, that concluded the Sabbath. So in our terms, on Saturday night. Now if you compare the account here that is given by John with the accounts given by Matthew in Matthew chapter 26 and Mark in Mark chapter 14 of the anointing of Jesus described by Matthew and Mark, there may be some question as to whether the anointing that is described here 
by John is the same as that which is described in Matthew and Mark. Now, both Matthew and Mark place their account of the anointing of Jesus not only after the triumphal entry of Jesus, but also after the the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus describes the, the signs of his coming at the end of the age. And John, here in chapter 12, obviously describes the event of Jesus' anointing prior to the triumphal entry. Though that is the case, I do believe that all three of those gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and John, are all describing the same event, even though Matthew and Mark place their description of it later in the flow of their narratives than John does. And I think the explanation for this is that Matthew and Mark, when they describe the anointing of Jesus, are flashing back in their narrative, as it were, to an event that took place chronologically prior, whereas John here is relating the events in chronological order as they occurred. The similarities between the events in all three Gospels seem to point to the fact that they are all describing the same event. And in those circumstances in which the accounts differ, I see nothing that is contradictory in the differences, but rather the accounts are complementary to one another. Matthew and Mark supplying information that John does not, and likewise John supplying information that Matthew and Mark do not give. And isn't this what you would expect when you read different historical accounts describing the same event? And so what we find in Matthew and Mark is that this meal took place in Bethany at the home of a man named Simon the leper. We see here in John chapter 12, verse 2, that Martha was serving. Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus. Mary takes a pound of pure nard and anoints Jesus with it. John specifically mentions that Jesus' feet were anointed. Matthew chapter 26 and Mark 14 mention that Jesus' head was anointed. I think Calvin put it well when he said, The three evangelists agree in this, that Mary did not anoint Christ sparingly, but poured on him a large quantity of ointment. What John speaks about the feet amounts to this, that the whole body of Christ, down to his feet, was anointed. And indeed, in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, Jesus speaks of his body as having been anointed. And John is clear that enough of the nard was used that, uh, that the house was filled with the fragrance of it. This was a large amount of anointing perfume that Mary used. And the fact that John draws specific attention to the fact that the feet of Jesus were anointed and that Mary wiped them with her hair may be in anticipation of what John is going to relate about Jesus washing the feet of his disciples in John chapter 13. It's very clear that in anointing Jesus as she did, Mary was lavishly giving something of great worth and value to Jesus. Nard was a fragrant oil that was extracted from the root of an herb that grew in what we would know as as India, and it was very expensive. The amount that she had in that jar would have been about one year's wages. Judas said that it could have been sold for over 300 denarii. A denarii was what a working person could have earned in a given day. And so uh, by the time you count off for the, the Sabbaths and the holy days, the 300 denarii would have been about one year's worth of wages for a working man in first century Judea. And not only did this woman use all of the nard that was in the vial, Mark tells us in his account that she broke the vial itself. She was taking this entire 
jar, this entire vial that she had, and was using it to anoint Jesus. There's a lot going on here. This woman was violating the cultural norms of the day, as apparently it would have been rare for women to interrupt men who were eating together except to serve food. This woman lavished something very special upon Jesus, have this expensive perfume worth one year of blood, sweat, and toil poured onto Jesus. And it's gone. It's over and done with. Think, in our terms, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000, years worth of wages, and then it's done. This speaks volumes of how much this woman valued Jesus. She saw in him someone who was worthy of a large financial sacrifice, and she was willing to expose herself to scorn by violating the norms of the day in order to honor him in this way. This was a woman who loved Jesus, a woman who esteemed Jesus as precious, a woman who was willing to demonstrate that love in a very tangible way. Now, obviously, the circumstances here are extraordinary. These are the days just prior to the crucifixion and death of Jesus. The Son of God himself was present in flesh on the earth. Extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. And Jesus himself acknowledges this when he says in verse 8, You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, if anyone else were to speak in this kind of a way, you always have the poor, but you don't always have me, we would say to them, Whoa, do you think you're special or something? That takes a lot of nerve to say, You do not always have me. Who do you think you are? This is not just anyone who is saying this. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the one who is to be honored in the same way that the Father is honored. He was at that time on the earth in the flesh, but he would not remain so for long. And Mary understood, at least to some degree, the uniqueness of Jesus. And therefore she understood, at least to some degree, the honor which Jesus deserved. This was a woman who knew Jesus personally, a woman who had experienced his kindness She loved to sit and listen when Jesus was teaching, even when it got under the skin of her sister, who was busy serving. She had received her own brother, Lazarus, back from the dead through the working of Jesus. She had many reasons to love Jesus. Now, you and I don't have the opportunity to do such a thing for Jesus in as much as Jesus has ascended to the Father and is no longer physically present on the earth. But the elements of what this woman did can still be helpful to us as we think about the ways in which we might seek to serve Christ. She loved Jesus. She esteemed him as precious. She saw him as worthy of significant financial sacrifice. She saw this opportunity of serving him as of greater importance than maintaining the cultural status quo. Now, we might well ask ourselves, do you and I... Love and esteem Jesus in the same way. Do you and I love him with similar passion? Do we love him to the point of being willing to make costly sacrifices? Or do we simply want Jesus just for the benefits? For the benefits that he gives to us. Salvation, eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, and so on. Do we just want the benefits but have little to no love for him in our hearts? Now certainly when we put it in those terms, it sounds really bad not to love Jesus, right? And indeed, Paul would go so far as to say in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, 
he is to be accursed. What we have in these verses is a picture of a woman who saw the great value of Jesus. She loved him. And she put that love into practice. Now, how can we do the same? Well, before we answer the how question, we might start by asking the why question. Why should we love Jesus? We should love Jesus because of who he is and what he has done. He is the Son of God who has brought salvation to us by becoming incarnate, becoming a man, taking the form of a servant for our salvation, and then culminating, of course, in his death on the cross and his resurrection three days later. And he did this freely for us. He had the authority to lay his life down, had the authority to take it up again so that we might receive forgiveness, receive the adoption as sons, though our Human races rebelled against God in every way imaginable. Even still, Jesus came to save sinners. This is why we must love him. It's because he has first loved us and has demonstrated this love in bearing the wrath of God for us. And even though we haven't obviously had the same personal experiences and interactions with Jesus that that Mary did, don't we, in a way, have even more reason to love Jesus, knowing as we do the the full story, having the full story before us in Scripture. Mary didn't know all of the events that were to to transpire within the the following week to ten days of Jesus' ministry. Mary didn't know. And Jesus said there in verse 7 that her detractors ought to leave her alone in regard to this oil, this perfume that she had, so that she may... Keep it for the day of my burial. And by those words, Jesus seemed to be indicating that instead of selling the perfume and giving the money away to the poor, Mary had kept it for the day of Christ's burial. Now, obviously, Jesus wasn't buried that particular day, but she, she had kept it for the, the day of his burial in the sense that this is the, the broad period, the, the week or so within which Christ would be buried. Mary anointed the body of Jesus for burial, but she didn't probably understand that he was going to be buried within the week. And her ignorance is much like that uh, that we'll see of the disciples in verse 16 later on. She had great reason to love Jesus, even though she didn't have the full picture of what Jesus was doing. But the point that I'm trying to make is that you and I do know what Jesus was doing and what he has done. We have the full New Testament witness. And... If Mary, therefore, could could love Jesus in such a way, even when she didn't have this full picture, then how much more should we love Jesus when we have this full picture? And so that brings us then to the how question. How should we demonstrate that love for Jesus? We know why we should love him, because of who he is, because of what he has done for us. Now, how do we demonstrate it? Well, the first and primary way that we demonstrate our love for Jesus is by obeying him. We read his words in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is how we show our love for Jesus. It's by doing what he says. How easy is it for us to claim to love Jesus and then refuse to do what he has told us? It's like a husband who says he loves his wife, yet pays no attention for her, does not care for her, prefers to be with others instead of her, and so on. It's not really loving her. Love will always show itself by its actions. The primary way that we demonstrate our love for Christ is displayed in our obedience. And seeing the 
the true worthiness of Jesus will also lead us then to make sacrificial choices and sacrificial decisions, engage in sacrificial actions for Jesus' sake. When we understand the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich, as Paul says in Second Corinthians, when we understand that, we understand more, at least, of just how worthy Christ is of our love. When we understand who he is, we won't want to serve anyone else. We will love him supremely, and then loving him supremely, we'll desire to be generous with our possessions, to put all that we have at Christ's disposal. We will want to join this woman in doing what we can for Christ and his kingdom. And since we all have different gifts, different possessions, and different abilities, the way that we contribute to Christ's kingdom and to Christ's cause will, will all be different. But every one of us who belong to Christ should do what we can. We can all do something. We should all do what we can. Sometimes this will take the form of giving a large sacrificial amount of money for the spread of the gospel or for the relief of the poor. Sometimes this may take the form of adoption by opening your home and your family to bring in an outsider who is desperately in need of a family to love and to care for them. Sometimes this may take the form of sacrificing time so that you can serve the Lord in some specific way. There are crisis pregnancy centers and homeless shelters who would love to have volunteer help. This can take the form of working in an evangelistic outreach in a local elementary school. This can take the form of sacrificing time with family to engage in evangelistic discussions with cult members. This can take the form of being willing to reach out to people who are lonely here at church and spend some time talking with them instead of talking to only your closest friends. There's nothing wrong with having some friends in church that are closer than others, but we just need to make sure that we're also taking time to love people who might feel like they're on the outside of things. We do this in our homes by being willing to put aside our own wants and desires for the well-being of our spouse, for the well-being of our children, or if you're a child, for the well-being of your parents, and for the well-being of our siblings. Imagine this. One way that you can serve Jesus is by being sweet to your family members. You can really serve Jesus that way. And if we're doing these things because we love Jesus and because we see how valuable he is and then want to do that because we love Jesus, then Jesus is honored. Jesus is glorified. And if we really know who Jesus is, then we should all want to do that. Here in John 12, we see love for Christ on display. And by the grace of God assisting us, we should seek to imitate that love, to love Jesus practically and tangibly. But in these first 11 verses of John 12, we also see hatred for Jesus alive and at work as well. We see the exact opposite of love. We see it, first of all, in the wicked attitude of Judas. We read his words in verse 5, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? And Matthew 26 and Mark 14 inform us that Judas was not alone in this sentiment, that other disciples joined him in his grumbling. But John gives us the scoop, though, that in regard to Judas, this was not because Judas really cared for the poor. 
It's because he was a thief. Now, maybe some of those others who were indignant at Mary, wrongly indignant, but indignant nonetheless, they might have cared for the poor. But Judas, not so. Judas didn't care about the poor. He only cared about himself and what he could pilfer from the money box. And given this hidden attitude of Judas and the words of Jesus in verse 8 when he says, For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me, we should notice a couple of things here. One is that sometimes, unfortunately, people talk about helping the poor, and all that they're doing is simply employing a, a red herring tactic. Now, you may be familiar with the red herring tactic. That's when someone throws out something with the attempt to mislead or distract from the issue at hand. Judas mentions the poor, but he doesn't care about the poor. Judas wants to get the money that can be gained by selling the perfume so that it can be put into the apostle's money bag and he can take what he wants. For Judas, it's fine if you earmark it for the poor. That's fine. He can help himself to that just as easily as he can help himself to anything else in the bag. The point is is that sometimes people will talk about wanting to help the poor or the need for you to help the poor when in reality they have no such thing on their agenda at all. You need to watch out for that. And while we're here, let me just say clearly though that helping the poor is a Christian duty. We should be helping the poor. Jesus' words here imply as much. When he says, for you always have the poor with you, he means that you can always help the poor. The implication is that you should help the poor. Indeed, the New Testament bears this out for us. James tells us, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And in 1 John 3, 17 and 18, we read this, that whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And similarly, we find in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, that when Paul was comparing notes with the other apostles to make sure they were all on the same page about the gospel that they were proclaiming, Paul says that the apostles in Jerusalem asked him to remember the poor. Paul said that was the very thing he was eager to do. And so we should be helping the poor. That's why we have a church benevolence fund. And just to to prep you for this, we'll be collecting our uh, benevolence offering after the Lord's Supper this morning, as we we have in times past. This is why we support the Baltimore Rescue Mission. And there are other helpful organizations that you can support to help the poor or If you know someone who is poor and who has legitimate needs and you're in a position to help, you can help. You don't have to necessarily work through an organization. You can just help. Even though some people may cry out, help the poor, and mean it in the sense of Judas Iscariot just as a red herring tactic, nevertheless, Christians should help the poor. We really should. The New Testament is pretty clear about this. Now, the second thing we need to notice here is that some people raise the cry of help the poor, and in doing so, whether they're doing it on purpose or not, they can actually be detracting from legitimate service to Christ. That's, that's what Judas was doing here. Mary was offering a legitimate worship to Jesus, and Judas said, help the poor, and he was trying to detract from that. D.A. Carson put it this way, and I think helpfully so. He said, If self-righteous piety sometimes snuffs out genuine compassion, 
then it must also be admitted with shame that social activism, even that which meets real needs, sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship and devotion. Those words, those words are true, that sometimes people may say, help the poor, and that's all they want to do, is help the poor, and they don't really care about worshiping Christ and honoring him. I think J.C. Ryle put it well when he said, it is the successors of Mary of Bethany, and not of Judas Iscariot, who really care for the poor, but they do not talk about it. While others talk and profess, they act. We should be acting to take care of the poor. And at the same time, and even more importantly, acting for the worship and honor of Jesus Christ. Now Judas had no love for Christ. This is borne out by the fact that he did not desire to see Jesus honored so richly as he was. He wanted to steal money rather than to see Jesus honored with money. And we also see this hatred in what follows there in verses 9 through 11. There again, John tells us, as he often does, about this division among the Jews. There's a large crowd of Jews who hear that Jesus is in Bethany, and so they came to see him. They wanted to see Jesus because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And they also want to see Lazarus as well. Just as a curiosity, perhaps. Just to, to validate that, oh, this guy really was dead, and there he is. He's alive. He's, he's eating there. Just ask yourself, wouldn't you want to see someone who was raised from the dead? These people certainly did. But on the other hand, we, we see in verses 10 and 11 the response of the chief priests. They see this crowd going away, believing in Jesus, and so now they plan. They've already planned to kill Jesus. Now they plan to kill Lazarus as well. As it was, the very fact that he was alive served as a testimony to who Jesus is. People knew. The word was out there that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And this was causing people to believe in Jesus, at least superficially. And given that, the chief priests, who were already planning to kill Jesus to stop this problem that they were having, now decide that they want to kill Lazarus as well. It's not too much more to add one more body to the count once you're already set on murder. As we saw last week, they wanted to stop the problem that they were perceiving that they had with Jesus at any cost. Now suffice it to say, hatred for Jesus, a failure to love Jesus, can lead to some pretty dark places. We see it in Judas, who, uh, as we know, went ahead to betray Jesus to his death. We see it here in the case of these chief priests who are now planning to kill not only Jesus, but also Lazarus. Again, as Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord... He is to be accursed. So the question we all need to ask this morning is, do you love Jesus? If you do, then obey him and serve him. Or do you hate Jesus? Be warned if you do. You don't know how far this sin will take you. It can take you to some places where you would not think you would go. You need to repent and believe in Christ before your sins drag you down to hell. Now let's, let's look... Verses 12 through 19, as we see Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. 
Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also, the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now here in verses 12 through 19, we see the account of the the triumphal entry. And what we see here is that, that Jesus is king, and also we see that the Lord accomplishes his purposes even when those who are involved don't know fully what they're, what they're doing. And let's, let's notice then the, the specifics that John mentions here. He tells us in verse 12 that this happened on the next day. Of course, this event that he's describing is what we know as Palm Sunday. So this means that uh, the day prior to that was, was this Sabbath evening meal when, uh, when Jesus was being anointed there by Mary. And then the next day, Palm Sunday, as Jesus is going into Jerusalem, he is met with these people who took palm branches and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, now what's happening here? By the first century, the palm branches had become a national or perhaps even nationalistic symbol for Judea. In the mid-second century B.C., when the Jews under Judas Maccabeus had recaptured and purified the temple We're told in 2 Maccabees 10.7 that the people offered hymns of thanksgiving with ivy-wreathed wands, beautiful branches, and fronds of palms in their hands. So when they go back in and take the temple away from the forces of Antiochus Epiphanes, they go in, and one of the things they have in their hands is palm branches. And when Judas' brother later on regained the citadel at Jerusalem and the Jews injured it, we're told in 1 Maccabees 13.51 that they went in with praise and palm branches with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. And then later on, hundreds of years later, in the first and second centuries A.D., when the Jews revolted against Rome, the coins that they struck had palms on them. And when the Romans defeated the Jews, the coins that they struck had palms upon them. These palm branches were national symbols and these are not simply something neutral that the people were holding as, as Jesus was going into Jerusalem. These, these conveyed meaning. They were conveying the messianic hopes of the people. And this messianic symbol then in their hands is only strengthened by the words which accompanied them holding the palm branches. They were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And that first word, Hosanna, is derived from two Hebrew words of Psalm 118.25, Hoshiana, which means save us, we pray, or do save, we beseech you. And then that expression, Hosanna, derived from Psalm 118.25, is then combined with what is found in the very next verse, Psalm 118.26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
And just to underline that their expectation was indeed messianic, they add on something that is not found in Psalm 118, where they say at the end, even the king of Israel. This is their way of identifying specifically upon whom they were pronouncing this blessing. He who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed be he, specifically the king of Israel. The Messiah king that they were hoping Jesus would turn out to be, of course, was a nationalistic Jewish Messiah, one who would restore the kingdom to Israel, one who would kick out the Romans and restore independence and national sovereignty to Judea. But Jesus squelches these hopes, at least somewhat, by finding a young donkey and riding on it into Jerusalem. In other words, he didn't go as a warrior king on a war horse. He came as a savior king, riding a donkey, and thus fulfilling the words of Zechariah 9.9, which our brother Nick read for us earlier this morning. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But John here, instead of beginning his quotation, uh, his quotation with the words, rejoice greatly, begins with the words, fear not, which are also a prophetic exhortation, perhaps drawing from uh, Isaiah 40, verse 9. It's not uncommon for the apostles sometimes to, to blend together prophecies when they announce the fulfillment of their prophecies. The significant thing is, is that prophecy was being fulfilled. Zechariah had announced that Zion's king would come with humility, riding on a donkey. And so he did. God had spoken this beforehand through the prophet about how the Messiah would come. And when he came, he came in that way, in fulfillment of what was written. This king came with gentleness, with humility, bringing salvation. And what is striking is if you read Zechariah 9.9 in context and read what immediately follows. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, we're told there by the Lord, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And the end of Zechariah 9.10 is actually drawing itself from Psalm 72.8, in which Solomon describes the, the ultimate Davidic king reigning from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So you have this Davidic king coming into Jerusalem, gentle, riding on a donkey. Zechariah prophesies that his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river even to the ends of the earth. And isn't this indeed what happened? That Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem and accomplished all that was necessary for our salvation by dying on the cross and rising again and then ascending to the right hand of God the Father. And then from Jerusalem, the good news of the gospel rang forth by the preaching of the apostles. And as that message was proclaimed, it was Jesus Christ speaking peace to the nations, showing them the terms by which they could have peace with God and be reconciled to him. And this is how the dominion of Jesus spreads from sea to sea, from the river even to the ends of the earth, as men and women of all nations receive the gospel and receive Christ as their king. Jesus described the fulfillment of the prophets in this way in Luke 24, 46 and 47. He said, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, 
beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, this was all part of the plan. The king would come into town on a donkey, humbly, gently, bringing salvation, and he brought that salvation by the events that were soon to unfold in Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem went forth the message about this king, and it was spread to all of the earth and is still being spread to all of the earth. The problem was this was not the kind of king, not the kind of kingdom that they were wanting or expecting. This was not a warrior king and a military kingdom throwing out the Romans. The victory that Jesus, though, was to accomplish was of much greater significance than any military campaign could possibly accomplish. His aim was not the destruction of Rome or of any earthly government, but rather the destruction of the works of the devil himself. This is why Jesus came, to destroy the works of the devil. It's what we find in 1 John chapter 3. And indeed, Christ did accomplish this. And he accomplished it in the most unlikely way possible. So to borrow the language of Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, through death he rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and freed those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Jesus died and therefore defeated the one who had the power of death. This is how this king, Jesus, conquered. He conquered through his own death. And he came in humility, on a donkey, just as the prophets had spoken. And Jesus has come. Jesus has conquered. And this king commands your obedience. In the preaching of the gospel, he calls each and every one of us to turn away from our sins, to believe on him. And this applies to all, to those of us who are his already. It applies to us so that we continue repenting, continue believing in him. And it applies to those who have never yet done so. You too are called this morning to turn away from your sins and to believe on Christ. And if you have further questions about what that means, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would be glad to tell you more about how you too can have peace with God through King Jesus Christ. But notice here also what John tells us in verse 16 about the disciples. He tells us that these things his disciples did not understand at the first. Referring to getting the donkey for Jesus, having Jesus ride on the donkey and so on. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Like so many of the others in this drama of Jesus going into Jerusalem and going ultimately to the cross, the disciples did not realize that they were playing a part in the fulfillment of prophecy. It was being fulfilled before their eyes, and they themselves had a hand in actively doing it, but as of yet, it was unknown to them. It was only in hindsight that they came to see it after Jesus was glorified, after Jesus had ascended into heaven, most likely after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit had been given to them. It was only when Jesus was glorified that they could look back and put the pieces together and say, oh, wow, Zechariah told us about that, and we, we did that to Jesus. We had no idea what we were doing at the time. And I think in some respects that there is something similar uh, that goes on with us in, in our lives as we seek to serve Christ. How so? Well, the disciples on this occasion had participated in a great part of the fulfillment of God's purposes 
for the salvation of sinners. Matthew and Mark tell us about how Jesus had sent two disciples into town to, to get a donkey for him and to, and to bring it back. And according to John, they, they just didn't know what they were doing. They did it in obedience to Jesus, but they didn't know how this played a part in God's great plan of salvation. And as for us, we go about our lives and we try to obey the Lord. We seek to do what he tells us to do, but we don't always see the fruit of it or realize how this plays a role in God's great plan. Obviously, we're not the apostles. This is not Palm Sunday. These men had a very specific role and a very specific prophecy to fulfill in salvation history, and we're not them, so we're not trying to confuse these things. But nevertheless, we do have a role to play in Christ's kingdom, and sometimes the full significance of what we are doing will be hidden from us, at least at the time. And that's okay. We don't, we don't have to know. The disciples here didn't have to know. And I don't, I don't know that John tells us that they, they didn't know what they were doing to, to shame the disciples somehow. We, didn't, we don't have to know how our faithful actions and obedience to Christ fit into to God's greater plans. It's okay if we are ignorant about that. The thing we need to do is just, just keep going. Just keep being faithful. Just keep serving King Jesus. Paul said it. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's the, that's the point that, that we need to remember, is just keep faithfully serving the Lord in whatever place and position He has put us. Let's seek to be obedient to Him. Let's seek to, to do what He has told us. Let's seek to love Him, to honor Him, as, as we discussed earlier. And just, just keep on going. And trust that in due time, uh, if, there's, if there's been fruit from it that we have not seen, if we don't see it here, we'll see it in eternity. Let's just keep going. Keep on being faithful to the Lord, loving Him, serving Him, and honoring Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is indeed a gentle humble and yet triumphant king, that he has triumphed over our greatest enemies, over our sin, over death, and over Satan. Father, we thank you for the love that Mary had for Jesus and what an example it is to us. We pray that we would take that example to heart, that we likewise would love Christ in sincerity, that we would show that love practically in what we do, always seeking to honor you. Lord, we ask your blessing upon us now as we prepare to come to, uh, to Christ's table. Pray that our hearts will be filled with joy as we reflect on the great salvation that has been purchased for us uh, by the death of Christ on the cross. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.